Austin, do you remember how long it took me to find a podcast platform for us? Forever. I ended up finding one called Anchor, and I initially chose it just because it was free. But it also has a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. They also distributed for us, so that's why we ended up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all of our other places. And you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Everything you need to make a podcast in just one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test. I'm Maddie. I'm Austin. And we're here today to talk about some of the things we may or may not have learned in school. And if we did learn them, we either learned them wrong or we only learned them in part. Yeah. So and it's just coming off of like our Christmassy break thing. Did you have a good time? I mostly did. We had our sewer system back up while I was on break, and so I lost almost a whole day to that. And then I was really sick yesterday. And on top of all of that, I had to go apply for a car loan, which was really stressful. And I just now saw some of the paperwork I needed to turn in with the loan application sitting on my desk. Oh, no. So first thing in the morning, I'm running up to the bank and going to give them my best sad face and hope that they will let me add that without running my credit a second time because I can't have them do that. Well... I got a copy of Super Smash Brothers for the Nintendo 64, and I'm really happy about it. Yeah, that was really exciting. I got a Huggle, which I have wanted for a really long time. It's basically this giant Sherpa, really fuzzy hoodie, but it's oversized, so you can kind of curl up on it. It's like a Snuggie that won't drag under your feet. Yeah, it's it's like a fancy Snuggie. We have like 30 Snuggies, though. We love them. We do. It's like they're perfect for lazy people like us who also want to be on the computer. We are super cool human beings. The coolest. But it's been it's been a good. uh, The thing is, I'm used to having like two weeks off from my previous teaching life. So it was an adjustment going down to just one. But I know a lot of people don't have that luck, kind of like you. Yeah, I had a single day off in the middle of the week. Which we spent traveling. We drove two hours one direction, did stuff with my family two hours back. He's a trooper, though. Like, What do you mean I'm a trooper? I just, I fell asleep in the car on the way there and the way back. I am like the best baby. And he made lemon bars for my family that went over really well. And as he always does, he made friends with the toddlers that were there. I didn't even like do anything. They just came up to me and started playing with me. I've got like an aura. It's of, the beard. They might have thought I was Santa. Haven't you had a kid ask you that before? They have. And you were in your 20s at that point. Yeah. Now I'm just getting jollier and like, I'm not gray yet, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I'm going gray. I'm going gray real fast. Maybe you're going gray, but you just have such light hair to begin with. You don't notice it. Maybe. Well, today we're talking about two very different topics. Austin is going first because I went first last week. Yay! I get to go first this time. Okay. This is just something that I was kind of thinking about randomly. And then I started looking into it more and more. And it's about the Comic Code Authority. I don't know what that means. My guess is it has to do with the seven words you can't say on stage that George Carlin talked about. It's so much more than that. So it's basically for 50 years on the front of every comic book, there was this little stamp that said approved by the Comic Code Authority. And it was just on there and I didn't know what it was. And then I started looking into what it was and it is nuts. Uh Uh-huh. It was a voluntary censorship that the comic industry underwent for 50 years. It started in 1954. So to 2004? Yeah, it's nutty. 
So it kind of started with, you know, comic books were very popular after World War II. Like there was multiple hundreds of millions of comic books were sold every year in the United States. They were a big deal. They were like popular, easy to access. Everyone had them. You could get them at any store. They were great. But in 1954, a psychiatrist, Frederick Wortham, published a book called Seduction of the Innocent. (laughs) He proposed that crime comics, which, by the way, uh, true crime comic books were a huge deal. And like anything dealing with crime or horror were way more popular than superheroes back in the day. Kind of like the radio shows back then. There are whole podcasts that are just those old radio shows and they're so cool. Yeah, it's, they were neat. They were like every, adults read comic books. Everyone loved them. And there was like, it wasn't just superheroes like it is now. And he thought that those, those crime comic books encouraged violence, sex, drug use, and other adult fare in children. He called these scenes injury to the eye. So like people think about video games now. Almost exactly what people think about video games now. In his book, he proposed that Batman and Robin were gay partners. Oh, that's where that comes from. Yeah. More importantly, he got that from interviews with a gay couple who thought that. That was it. That was his entire evidence. There was one gay couple who thought that Batman and Robin were gay. And so funny. He also said that um, there were bondage themes in Wonder Woman, which was initially denied. But we found out later that, yes, the creator of Wonder Woman did have tons of bondage themes in Wonder Woman. Is that the lasso of truth? Yeah. yeah. And also she'd lose her powers and she was tied up. So she was very frequently tied up in early issues. He also said that Wonder Woman was also a lesbian because she was strong and independent. I mean, all strong, independent women... Yep. Must be. We still have that in the world today, too. People, <laughs> men, let's be honest. Oh, well, she didn't want to date me, so she must be a lesbian. Oh, she works as a carpenter. Must be a lesbian. Maybe she's just better with a drill than you are. Maybe. Uh, also, that um, Superman was both un-American and a fascist. I mean, he technically wasn't American. He was Kryptonian? Uh, Superman's an illegal immigrant. And yet. And yet. And yet. Um, he also went after, like the retailers who would sell these comic books next to knives and air rifles to further corrupt the youth. (laughs) His evidence was mostly anecdotal. He cherry-picked his findings. He outright lied about things. And he had uh, pictures from comic books in this book. There was one where Captain Marvel didn't have his head, and they're talking about how this decapitated figure in this comic book. He had spilled invisibility potion on his head. That was from the comic book. But he insisted that, no, he was just a decapitated horrific monster. And that the character known as the Blue Beetle was a Kafka-esque nightmare. When in fact, he was just a guy with a beetle-themed suit of armor. And this guy's a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist. Which we still have doctors doing that today, especially when they're not medical doctors. They don't bother to mention that when they're talking about vaccines or whatever. Or when they're, you know, blossom. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, a uh, another psychiatrist did a study of his book in 2012 and just found out that everything was wrong. Like, he lied about things. He just, like, it was a very small sample size. And he didn't report all of his findings. He only reported his findings that supported his claim that these were corrupting the youth and all of that stuff. This is why we have the peer review process, which, if it existed then, probably wasn't as well vetted. No, it wasn't. But the thing is, it even if it wasn't well vetted, it was a best-selling book. Oh, of course it was. This, it took off. Like, there were mother's groups screaming. It was a big deal. A senator, Estes Kefauver, Kefauver? Kerfefer. K-F. 
K-E-F-A-U-V-E-R. I have no idea. And Senator Asshole from Tennessee formed the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency because of the outrage over this book. Uh, There were two hearings, one on April 21st of 1954 and the second on June 4th of 1954, in which they brought uh, in that doctor who wrote The Seduction of the Innocent and several comic books publishers to talk about comic books. I will also note that this was around the time of the Red Scare. Yeah, I was about to say. So these comic book publishers were well aware that Senate committees could, in fact, ruin your entire career. Yeah, it's that whole idea of they can't fire all of us. Oh, yes, they can. Yeah, they can. So they were acutely aware that, oh, not only can they do something about this, they can do something completely awful about this and ruin everybody's lives. So they decided they were going to self-censor, which they created the... Comics Code Authority. It's uh, similar to the MPAA, which does our movie, our movie ratings and the um, video game ratings. Which, by the way, movie ratings, video game ratings are private and completely voluntary by the publishers. There is no law about any of these things. Yeah, yeah. I think there are like they have specific regulations in the ratings, but it's voluntary to opt into them. Isn't that right? It's completely voluntary. There's no oversight of it. All of this is just something someone decided to do as a good idea 50 years ago and has not really been updated or changed. Mm-hmm. It's, I think that's nuts. So you want to hear some of these codes they put in place? I do. All right. Most of them are related to crime and violence, but some of them are very much a product of the 50s. He has something printed off I today. printed something off because it's like a page of these things. I'm just going to read the highlights. Crime shall never be presented in such a way as to create sympathy for, to, for the criminal, to promote the distrust of forces of law and justice... Or inspire others with desires to imitate criminals. That's kind of why a lot of books get censored even in schools today. Mm-hmm. So immediately you could not make a comic book of Les Miserables. Yeah. It's like he stole a loaf of bread. Well, too bad. You cannot have sympathy for this criminal. And also Javert was in no way wrong. Javert is one of the most fascinating characters. Very- if crime is depicted, it shall be a sordid and unpleasant activity policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way to create disrespect for established authority. Also, this meant that you could not do anything related to race, anything related to just corrupt politicians, or even though it was going on at the time they weren't talking about it, like all of the sex abuse in the church. You couldn't go after that respected institution Uh in a comic book. No comic or magazine shall use the words horror or terror in its title. Okay. Which, what? (laughs) Scenes dealing with or instruments associated with the walking dead, torture, vampires, and vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism are prohibited. Yet back then, all movies were exactly that. Yes. But these were comic books and they were corrupting the kids. So we had to get rid of all of it. There's no profanity or vulgarity, no nudity in any form. There could be no nudity or anything even related to nudity or females shall be drawn realistically without exaggeration of any physical qualities. Suggestive and salacious illustrations or suggestive posture is unacceptable. So if you're looking at all these comic books from back in the 50s, that's why everyone is this super boxy, like minimalist pose. You can tell that they were freaked out by this and were trying to not have anything that could be remotely suggestive. I'm not saying that the censorship part of that was right but i do kind of wish we had left in the whole don't draw women solely as sex objects thing well they were still solely as sex objects but just the way this was enforced was very patchy and sexual perversion or any inference to the same is strictly forbidden so 
by this, all LGBTQ plus whatever content was banned from comic books. Until 1994, 2004-ish? They changed it a few times. It wasn't until 1989 that they allowed even like the insinuation that someone was gay into Uh. a comic book. And I kind of shuddered to think how that would have been handled in the 90s by comics, too. Yep. Here we go. Also, um, rape scenes and sexual abnormalities are unacceptable. I get that. So, that was the code. It also, there was one comic book company that this completely shut down. It's almost like it was specifically targeting them, which it kind of was. Because their uh, comic books, it was Entertaining Comics, or EC Comics, which is, I guess, Entertaining Comics Comics. EC, their bestsellers were... Crime Suspense Stories, The Vault of Horror, and Tales from the Crypt, which was hosted by a ghoul. Yeah. So all of their bestsellers were immediately shut down by this code. Their only other remotely profitable thing was Mad, which used to be a comic book, but they changed it to a magazine to avoid this code because this was completely voluntary. And if they weren't a comic book, air quotes, they didn't have to follow it. So Mad Magazine was started so they could just avoid all of this disaster. Here's a great example from early in the comics code about how this became problematic. EC Comics was denied the approval to publish a story called Eye for an Eye because the main character was black. So they decided to republish something that they had published before the code. It was called Judgment Day, where the big twist at the end, it's revealed that the astronaut character was in fact black. It was again denied because the main character was black. However, EC Comics then threatened to go to the press about this. So they relented and allowed it to be published. And the only thing wrong in there was that their main character was black. That was the exact reason. And he reason. was the good guy. He, yeah, the good guy was black. Jesus. Was why it was being denied. And guys, keep in mind, this is not that long ago in the grand scheme of yeah, things. Yeah, this was in 1950, the 1950s. Yeah, you might have parents that were alive then. Yeah. So You might be... You might have been alive then. We don't want to assume that everybody who listens to us is young. Yeah. It's like, you could have been Younger. alive then. Yeah. I mean, I mean, my grandparents love to listen to our podcast. In fact, they gave it five-star reviews over Christmas. <laughs> we only helped one. Callbacks. We only helped one person set us up during our break. And uh, there I, were so many phones left on tables. We got so many good reviews. I did not I go in and write a review I didn't us. do that. They even eliminated slang and colloquialism because they thought it was a corrupting factor with children. The code forced comics to become a juvenile medium because what content was allowed was so far below G-rated. This was like Happy Bunnies, the absolute you know, milk toast juvenile form of literature. And that's why comic books became all superheroes and stuff for kids because they could not do anything else. Milk toast, good vocabulary word. Yeah, I think it's colloquialism, so I shouldn't be allowed to use it. It's too fancy to be a colloquialism. Yeah. However, that doesn't mean they didn't have ways of getting around this. Of course. Here's some of my favorites. First of all, they did have to make some changes. Batman actually had to be deputized by Commissioner Gordon so he would stop breaking the law with his vigilante justice. And also, Batman was no longer allowed to have a romantic relationship with Catwoman because she was a criminal. So Catwoman actually disappeared for a decade or two. This is the fun way they got around it, though. Because, you know, how there were no vampires allowed? hmm Well, there was Morbius, the living vampire from Spider-Man. He is as Dracula as you can get. Pale skin, he flies around, he's got fangs, he's got flowing dark hair, red eyes. He was just bitten by a radioactive vampire bat, much like Spider-Man, and was going around thirsting for blood at night. But he was not a vampire. That's worse than a vampire, though. Yeah, 
So they were using their imagination to get vampires into these stories without having vampires. DC had Zuvembis, not zombies, even though they were clearly The Walking Dead. But these aren't zombies. These were Zuvembis, and they're very different. Zuvembis? How Zoo- are they different? They're called Zuvembis. <laughs> and of course, there were mutants that were hairy wolf beasts that would go feral. But they were not werewolves. They were mutants. Uh-huh. So there were all these ways of getting around it. And just eventually they did try to change the code, specifically because of Stan Lee and Marvel Comics. The United States Health Department came to him asking if they could do a Spider-Man comic about drug abuse. They were kind of a PSA thing. And they had it in which there was Spider-Man was dealing with someone who and he was a heroin user and it was talking about the dangers of drug abuse. Uh-huh. The Comics Codes Authority denied the story. Marvel published it anyway. Do you know why it was denied? Because in my head, it's because he tried to help him and not just send him to jail. And a crime was depicted, but there was no immediate consequences. So it's exactly that. Yeah. He wasn't treated like a criminal. Mm-hmm. He was treated like a person. He was treated like a person. So it was denied. They published it anyway. And they said, it's like, the government wanted us to do this. Are you going to stand in our way? And they said, no, but you're not allowed to do this again. And Marvel promised to never do that again, but they did change the code. And more specifically, they changed it to allow literary figures like Dracula and Frankenstein, who were not previously allowed, and all of these horror stories from Edgar Allan Poe, because it's like, oh, yeah, kids are reading about this in school, so maybe it's not corrupting the kids as much. Or we should just ban all of it, and they're only allowed to read Paddington Bear from now on. Yeah, and of course, they started to uh, loosen the, like, you know, things could be sexier in comics, mostly because of the changing culture. Could you hear my eye roll? I could hear your eye roll. I don't mind that there are sexy things in comic books. That's not it. It is the way that they depict women as nothing but a pair of tits that are there for the entertainment of the men, even if they themselves are heroic. They're like, mm-mm. Uh, your, yeah. your boobs matter more than the good things you're doing. Still no zombies, so we had to continue with the Zuvembis. And, of course, anything related to homosexuality, still not okay. But this did open the door for um, a couple of superheroes, namely Blade, because Dracula was allowed, and Dracula made other vampires, because Blade fought vamp- Dracula one time. All of these other vampires were just, like, you know, made by Dracula. So Blade was going around fat- fighting vampires that were just the most tangentially related to Dracula uh-huh. And Marvel could get away with vampires because Dracula existed and made more vampires. It was crazy. And of course, even though LGBT content was banned still, they had s- very subtle characters. Like there was a character in Alpha Flight, which is the Canadian version of the Avengers in Marvel, named Northstar, who the entire time the creator, the writer of this was working on it, Northstar was gay. He was written as a gay character originally, but they just never addressed it. And it, he, like, never got married or did anything with other men. But he was just a gay character. It was, like, a super secret gay character that nobody knew about. Oh, I forgot about this. Also, Stan Lee, he was recalling during this time, he was censored for having a puff of smoke from a gun that was too violent. <laughs> so he needed to make that puff of smoke from the gun smaller so it would pass the code authority. It just so very arbitrary, stupid rules about all of this stuff. Yeah, we have that kind of stuff in schools too. Like for a long time, there was kind of this, in some places it was an actual rule, in some places it was a recommendation. It still happens. If a student writes a violent story, but it's in third person, it's okay. If they write it in first person, we have to suspect that they are somehow dangerous or planning on self-harming depending on the nature. Oh, that is so wise. 
Yeah, and yet we are trying to teach them first versus third person. And it's like, yeah, there are red flags that you should look out for, but it doesn't necessarily mean, it, when you're writing fiction, I doesn't mean I. Also, I should note this. Um, Texas and Oklahoma did pass comic book banning laws. Of course. California tried to, but it was deemed unconstitutional. So Texas and Oklahoma banned comic books because of, you know, the children. Won't someone please think of the children? After they loosened those standards, there was a big rush of independent comic books that were being published, and things changed, mainly because they stopped selling comic books as children's stuff, and they stopped using the code, and no one cared anymore. All these independent publishers were just directly selling comic books to comic book stores who would sell them to the people. There was no longer this like middleman distribution system, which is what the comics authority depended on to actually work. By this time, there were only four publishers doing the comics code authority in the age. It was Marvel, DC, Archie, and Harvey Comics. Archie has pretty much stuck with that for the most part, though. Oh. Like that, They've gotten a, a lot more liberal in the last few years, but they've always been, at the end of the day, reasonably wholesome, at least... Now, but now we have Riverdale. <laughs> we have Riverdale, which we get all of the horny teenagerness out of that comic and onto the TV. <laughs> and of course, Harvey, you might not know this, but they're responsible for Casper the Friendly Ghost, Richie Rich, all of those. Which are super sad and a little scary in actuality. Oh my God, they're terrifying. But so they're the only ones still using it. And Archie was fine with it. Marvel was kind of okay with it. They didn't want to change anything because they were already carefully skirting the rules anyway and didn't want to have a crackdown. Harvey said was open to a change, but they didn't want it to be overly liberal. DC was the only one pushing to change it. Mostly because it's like, no one cares anymore. Why are we doing this? So they really loosened up the wording of these rules. Stan Lee was DC, right? Stan Lee was Marvel. Really? Yeah. D around this time, uh, DC was trying to make Batman dark again. Uh-huh. They were trying to get away from like the, the Adam West style Batman and into more of the Dark Knight style Batman. Do not, do not do that. Christian Bale ruined Batman. Well, Christian Bale didn't ruin Batman. Ben, ben Affleck ruined Batman. Ben Affleck made it worse, but it was already ruined. No, no, Ben Affleck ruined it. Christian Bale was kind of good. I hated him. Uh, you have no taste. I have plenty of taste. I like the original Batman movies back when they were actually dark. And not when Maggie Gyllenhaal's about to break into song before she dies. <laughs> God, I forgot about that. So, and of, of course, they're saying that all of these restrictions were crippling the industry, which they were. So they rewrote the guidelines again. They were more broad. And were more general statements and gave more editorial control to the comic book creators. But these were never released to the public. So we have no idea what these actually said. So that happened. They allowed gay people. North Star came out. He came out in 1992. So yay! He was the first gay comic book character. The first openly gay First one. openly gay comic book character. Then, of course, uh, in 2001, Marvel completely dropped the comic books code. Nobody cared. And in 2011, DC dropped it. <laughs> And it officially died. So 10 years later, DC gave in, even though, I mean, it didn't really change what they do. Uh, they now rely on themselves to regulate content. That makes the most sense. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Instead of relying on this, like, you know, dinosaur from the 50s to tell you what you should and shouldn't write because they were afraid, they were afraid of being mccarthy Yeah, I can't blame them for starting it. No. So th that was the Comics Code Authority. The weird reason why comics went from something adults read to something purely juvenile to coming back to something adults read again now. It's a weird little 50-year blip in graphic media. <laughs> yeah. So are you ready for some questions? I am. So these aren't like, I don't want answers to these questions. These are just questions of whether this will be on the test or not. Okay. 
Will the super over-reduced, shatty study that crippled an industry be on the test? Well, I'm going with this being a test in a literature class, and I think it would. Yeah, I think it would. The seduction of the innocents. They might not go too much into the actual things that are in oh, it. Which, by the way, I was looking this up. That book, it's super hard to find because he cited his sources and publishers realized, oh shit, he cited his sources and they tore those out. And if you have a copy of Seduction of the Innocent with the citations, it's worth a shit ton of money. You're rich, guys. You're you can, rich. You can donate it to us. Well, the fact that movies and video game ratings kind of date back to this arbitrary self-imposed results from that said, said scam study beyond the test? No, because they might go home and tell their moms and then the teachers will get in trouble. Yeah. Will Zuvembis be on the test? Again, basing this on a literature test, yes. <laughs> I love Zuvembis. Zuvembis. Will the fact that Mad Magazine became a magazine just to avoid all this bullshit be on the test? Yeah. <laughs> will, the, will the kids know what Mad Magazine is anymore? I sure hope not. It wasn't very good. It's It was still around for a while. It I think, was. We I sold think, it when I worked at the bookstore. I think they're finally gone because we don't have them at the library. They're anymore. gone. I think they're just online now. Yeah. All right. So that was the Comics Code Authority. Wow. Okay. There was a lot to this. I just tried to like find the highlights that weren't too just boring. <laughs> you Living do, vampires. You should do a whole episode just on Stan Lee. He was a complicated guy and did a lot of good things and also some kind of shady things. So yeah, he is a good he's a good history figure for this. Especially now that comic books and graphic novels are considered a valid teaching tool in a lot of language arts classes. Oh god. You have mixed feelings on that just like I do? I do. There are lots of really beautiful like graphic novels out there like um American Born Chinese, Mouse, Mouse, uh Watchmen is spectacular. I can't see Watchmen being used too much in schools though. Oh no, it can't be used in schools. But it is definitely literature. Yeah, the hard line is finding what is literature, what is not. And especially what the kids, because kids know when you're pandering. Like when your mm-hmm. teachers know to dab, they know what you're doing. So finding that line between proof, being able to back up to the kids that know this is literature versus we're hip like you. We Look are at- with it with the youths. What is up, children? And then also just selling it to kids. Because I was, I hated comic books. I liked the X-Men ones when I was little, but as I got older, I loved dense chapter books. I felt like I was like engaging and I felt like I was in literature and I would not have felt that with graphic novels growing up. Even now, I'm not a huge fan. I like the Buffy ones and I like The Walking Dead, but even then they're not my go-tos. I prefer dense books without pictures. I find pictures, I prefer to imagine it. Mm -hmm. I would have been a hard sell. See, I, I appreciate the art in some. Like, there's one comic book I really love right now, which I'm just going to promote it for everyone. It's called Rat Queens. It's a bunch of very feminist D&D characters kind of going on adventures. It's really fun. Sponsor us, Rat Queens. Sponsor us. I think it's Image Comics. So, what do you have for us today? Well, remember a few episodes ago, I started going on a rant about the bystander effect. So I made a joke about being an upstander, not a bystander. And you asked if that was a real thing. And of course, I got started on it. Oh, yeah. There's so many things I say that result in accidental rants. I figure if I'm going to start it, I might as well finish it. So I'm talking about the actual psychological bystander effect today. Tell me about this bystander effect. Well, the bystander effect is taught in schools both as a, this is a rule that you should follow, morality tale almost, and it also lets us get kids in trouble for not intervening, and in any level of psychology class you will take. If you took it in high school, you learned about the bystander effect. If you learned, took it in college, you learned about the bystander effect. Yeah, I remember that, like, this very specific instance where someone was being killed 
on the street and there were dozens of witnesses looking down out of their apartments and they did nothing. That's what you learned in psych class, That's wasn't what I it? learned in psych class. I'm going to talk about that. Oh, good. So the bystander effect, according to Britannica.com, is the, quote, inhibiting influence of the presence of others on a person's willingness to help someone in need. It doesn't matter if it's something as simple as a person being rude to a store clerk or as serious as someone, like you said, being murdered. It's totally dependent on the... De- Not just the presence, but the behavior of others around you. That causes the bystander effect. So you're talking about Kitty Genovese. Mm -hmm. If you took a psych class, you learned about Kitty Genovese. If you listen to true crime podcasts, you learn about Kitty Genovese. So I'm not going to get heavily into her story because if you want to hear about it, you've got so many opportunities. But I am going to give you the brief overview just in case you haven't. So this makes sense. Kitty Genovese was a bartender who was followed home from work by a man named Winston Mosley on March 6th, uh, March 13th, 1964. She noticed him following her, ran towards her building, but he chased her down and stabbed her with a hunting knife. <laughs> so the cats. That was a really inappropriate laugh, but the cats were being funny. Okay. I'm going to be in a serious situation <laughs> now. Continue. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sorry, it blamed Draco. So she's screaming, oh my God, he stabbed me, help me. So she's giving people around her, if there are any, all the information they need. I am being stabbed. I am in need of assistance. One of the neighbors actually yelled to let that girl alone. Well, after that, she got up and walked away. So some people would go follow her to see if she's okay. Some people would be like, oh, she's walking. She's fine and would walk away. So we do know at least one person has already intervened. She makes her way towards the building, got to a spot where no one can see her, People did see Mosley drive off. He came back 10 minutes later. There are some reports that say people saw him come back, some that don't. I kind of doubt anybody would admit to it. That, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, I saw him leave after stabbing the girl. Then I saw him come back and didn't do anything. He ultimately finds her in a hallway because she couldn't get into her door. She couldn't, there was a lock that she couldn't open for some reason. Stabbed her multiple times, then raped her, then stole all the money she had on her. This whole thing lasted about 30 minutes, so about 2.30 in the morning to about 3 in the morning. She was later found by a neighbor named Sophia Farrar, who held her as she was bleeding to death, and if I remember it correctly, screamed for help. Another person who intervenes. She did not fall victim to the bystander effect, possibly because she was the only one there, and possibly because she had a previous relationship with the victim, whether or not that was close, even just a high in the hallway, you recognize them, you're probably more likely to intervene. The police did not show up for a very long time, and Kitty Genovese bled to death in the ambulance. So she lived through all of this and lived for a good while afterwards, and because the police didn't show, she died. She maybe would have lived. She was stabbed a lot, so who knows. Uh So the New York Times gets the story, and this is the story that's taught in psychology class. Emphasis on the word story. This is where we get the bystander effect or Genovese syndrome from. It was titled 37 who saw murder didn't call police, then amended to 38. So ultimately they said 38 people saw a murder. Saw. They used that word and didn't call the police. There is zero evidence that anybody saw the murder. What? Mm Mm-hmm. They even quoted one person as saying they just didn't want to get involved. And this whole thing focused not on the actions or inactions of individuals, but on the effect that living in an urban area has on one's morality. Now, you remember the Boston bombing and people running towards it instead of away from it? That should kind of give you a good indication of what urban life actually does to somebody. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. Some of the least empathetic, least caring people I've ever met come from, like, small rural communities where it's like, well, I don't know this person. Why would I help them? 
that is not, that is definitely a country thing. Yeah. So the whole story is very sad, but it's also untrue. What we are taught to this day in psychology classes and to children to tell them to not be a bad person is untrue. Actually, it even has like a little bit of an effect in like other classes because in my EMT classes, they told us if you're ever like on the scene and you're not working, you direct someone very specifically to call 911. I actually talk about that. You don't shout it. You just say you with the hat. Call 911. I get to that at the end of this. Oh, yay. (laughs) In fact, the same year that the story went out, a competing news organization found out the entire truth, but was too afraid to confront the Times because they were the biggest paper. There are records of police calls, but the 911 system was not implemented for until four years after this. So the actual information from the calls is a little fuzzy and the police didn't go. They had the information and made a choice. If anybody's a bystander right now, it's the it's NYPD. Them. We don't know if they were ignored or put as a low priority. One person attests that their father called the police to say a woman had been beaten up and walked away, which was true and may contribute to the lack or slow response because they're like, oh, she got up. She's fine. He had said beaten up and not stabbed repeatedly because, you know, you probably can't see that from far away even after yeah. a hunting knife. Another witness called a friend and asked, what should I do? I see a girl getting beaten up. And the friend was like, I don't know. <laughs> so he calls another friend. I see a girl getting beaten up. What should I do? I don't know. Let me call another friend. So that second friend called someone else. And that guy was like, fuck you. I'm calling the cops. So he did. That was when the police arrived. After this third party called the police after a guy called a friend who called a friend to ask, what should you do when someone's being stabbed to death? You call the police. I had a time where I was bleeding pretty badly and I texted you and asked at what point should I go to the doctor? But I I wasn't going to die. At worst, I was going to get a scar. I think I remember my response being, I think it's at the point where you're texting me to see if you need to go to the doctor. It was one of those condensation on the table situations where the glass slides and I made the mistake of catching it. And it was a champagne glass and it just shattered in my hand. And it was only my finger, thankfully. Doctor was really cute, though. (laughs) So the police arrived two hours after she was being stabbed. This poor woman is bleeding to death for two hours. And she died probably because of that. Fast forward to 2007. The magazine American Psychologist published that there is no evidence of the bystander effect in any large way anyway in the Kitty Genovese case. They say... Yeah, there are probably bystanders who didn't do anything, but there is hard evidence that it was not zero. We still teach this despite psychologists saying, hey, maybe don't teach this as a fact. So this is basically a psychologist read a headline and then just decided, yeah, that sounds right. Kind of like your psychiatrist reading a comic book and getting verklempt. <laughs> okay, another great vocabulary word, verklempt. I think it's verklempt. I don't know. I We've been watching uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yeah, it's And really it's affecting good. our vocabulary. That said, there are actual studies related to Kitty Genovese that are about the bystander effect. Ten days after her murder, psychologists John Darley and Bib Latan, I think it's pronounced, they're both psychologists, were having lunch and just discussing the case. And they decided to see if they could explain or replicate the claim that 38 people witnessed the murder and had not intervened. They both work at a university. They have lots of resources. They began by pairing students with another person, which is a confederate or a partner of the psychologists. They do not tell the student that this is a confederate of theirs. Then had them converse via an intercom. Some students were told that it was a one-on-one conversation. Some were told that there were three participants. 
Some were told that there were six participants, but only one person could talk at the same time. The Confederate tells them early on that they have a seizure disorder and then proceeds to have a seizure towards the end of the conversation. And in that seizure, they actually say, I am in need of assistance and I'm about to die if I do not get that assistance. In the case where students were told it was a one-on-one -on -one conversation, 85% went to help, meaning 15% did not. When they believed there were three people, so them two others, 62% went for help. And when they believed that there were six, only 31% went for help. This is called diffusion of responsibility, wherein participants believe that others are involved and therefore their own personal responsibility is less. Someone else will do it. Conversely, a later study done by a different guy named Irvin Staub showed that people are more likely to offer assistance when in a group if someone else is also doing so. They found that young children were as likely to help in pairs as adults were, but they were more likely to discuss their fears, expectations, and to create a plan ahead of time than the adults. The adults are just like, let's go help. The kids are like, I'm nervous about this. How do we handle this situation? Okay, let's go handle it. Wow, kids kids I'm are so much more responsible than ages adults. Ages six and seven. Ages about. six and seven? It's like, okay, there's a problem. Here's a plan. Are you worried? Me too. Let's go. People of all ages are more willing to help if there is someone else also willing to help. Which brings me into the next study. Darley from the original study did two more in which he found other reasons for inaction. One is that they look for people to behave in a certain way. So if you are in a situation, you look around to see how others react, particularly those you consider in charge, but you also look at your peers. He did this by having a room fill with smoke and having their Confederates react in different ways. If the Confederates were calm, people did not go for help. If the Confederates panicked, people went for help. This is called pluralistic ignorance, wherein we see another's calm reaction as a sign that nothing bad is happening. <gasps> this has happened to me. Uh-huh. In high school, we were at an orchestra competition and we were playing one of our pieces and a fire, fire alarm goes off. Uh-huh. We stop for a moment and we look at our director and she's she keeps going, so we keep playing. There was an actual fire. The building was evacuated. We just kept playing. It's like, we could have died. Yeah, I actually mentioned that here. It's worth noting that teachers and parents are trained to remain calm, even in situations of panic, in hopes that that will rub off on the, adult, on the children. Here's the problem, though. You see two people getting into a fist fight and you react calmly and walk away, that's what your kids internalize. As a teacher, you see two kids getting into a fist fight and don't immediately intervene, or this is a way we actually have to handle it. You actually do intervene, but then you just go with something, a very calm, we'll talk about this later, or let's get back to work. The kids are, less, are going to be less likely to intervene because you have modeled that your response is just to say, don't do that. Now, the fact is the teachers can't do more than that without becoming across as the irrational one, getting in trouble themselves or breaking privacy rules because the other kids can't know how you're handling the situation. But it does make me think maybe teachers should be given a little more leeway in telling the kids, you are being an absolute tool right now. I expect you to stop at this moment or there will be real consequences. I saw a few fistfights. I stepped in the middle of fistfights regularly. Do not do that. It's a bad choice. I was uh -huh. lucky I never got punched. But yes. especially if you're shorter than the people involved, which I was in one of these occasions. Oh, your head's right at shoving level. You shouldn't do that. Yeah, I mostly startled them. One of the kids, like the, they were... They were best friends. They didn't want to be fighting in the first place. You, you know. <laughs> uh, it's, the best thing I've seen of diffusing those is confusing them out of it with like just like shouting out nonsense phrases or doing something really bizarre next to them. Mm -hmm. They will stop and like what is going on 
and just kind of back away. Yeah, and I can't let this particular point go by without mentioning the police officer at Stoneman Douglas. He is the authority figure who sets the tone for how to react, and his way to do it was to hide and then direct others to do the same. So they're like, okay, authority figure, this is what we're doing. Now, in the case of kids, yeah, hiding might not be the worst, running is the best, but he directed other people who should have been in authority to do that, but he was the expert on the scene. So I'm still angry about that. And this is something I try to drive to my students is that the powers don't always know best. You should not always emulate them. You have to decide for yourself. Is this a situation where they are having the appropriate response? What should I do instead? I even told them, if you think I'm behaving inappropriately, just tell me. If you think I'm wrong about something, just tell me. And that also worked on the skills of how do you stand up to an authority figure? Because I was an, I was an easy one. I actually really enjoyed my kids. And I was in a place where I could be like, okay, I understand where you're coming from, but I don't like the way you approach me with it. So let's figure out the best way to do that. And they were generally really receptive. Obviously we had kids who got annoyed. I would sometimes get annoyed, but that's an important thing to drive home is just because they're an authority doesn't always mean they're right. And I am not a fan of kids should always follow what you say. This fact that authority figures aren't always right goes directly in the face of the comics code authority. It does. It you does. are not, gonna, I'm afraid, but you're not going to be allowed to be published with that attitude. Then we have our third study, which was also performed by Darley, this time with a psychologist named Daniel Baston at Princeton, where he had st students walk across campus to give a talk to the group. These were seminary students, meaning that their whole study system was rooted in the belief that you love your neighbor, right? Right. That's what seminary is. It's, you know, religion. Okay. Should I be they brought in two different factors. One is that you've got a lot of time to get across campus. One is that you are late. They had a confederate act as if he was in distress, slumped over in pain in a tunnel that they would have to go through. If they were late, only 10% of the seminary students stopped to help. Future theologians and ministers, 10% stopped. There's a story a very important story about a Samaritan that they're just ignoring because they're in a hurry. This is, that's the exact story. Mm -hmm. When they were not late, more than 60% stopped. That still leaves 40% that didn't. But, oh my God. <laughs> now there is something I get into a little bit later that I think might have contributed to that. But let's remember, they're on a college campus. What do college kids do? The sex and the drugs. And the drinking too much. They probably had seen several drunk kids just slumped over waiting for it to go off. So that's part of it is that they might just look over and be like, oh, he just looks drunk and keep going, which really you can't blame him for too much. I did watch a similar study to this in psych class, although with all the stuff I'm learning for this podcast, I question the veracity of it, wherein they did this same study, but had it be on a city street with no students involved, just a city street with the same Confederate. In one case, he was wearing a suit. In one case, he was made to look homeless and significantly more people stopped when he was in a, in a suit. But that also goes back to we're, us being taught, oh, all those homeless people are drunkards and drug addicts and, and are just doing this to rob you. So it's also a learned behavior. In the 90s, bystander education began entering schools. One of the things that focused on in the 90s was the psychology of being a bystander versus an altruist, which is the word they use for helper in most of these studies. I will not use the word upstander. I think it's insulting to everyone's intelligence. Yes, I said it. They can understand the word altruist. They can understand helper, upstander. You don't gotta be cute. Yeah, I will tell you, as, as as a former student, every time something got cute, I broke out my book and started reading. Yeah, when it gets cute, they're not gonna buy into it. And this is a serious issue. Yeah, if you present it as a serious issue, it's like, 
yeah, do this. People could die if you don't. It's like, oh shit. Also, it's like, would you rather be an upstander or an altruist? I'd rather be neither. Those both sound pretty, but out of the two, altruist. Yeah, it makes you sound important. So they went in from the perspective of opening the conversation about the kids' fears regarding being a bystander. Because that's where it ultimately comes from. If I'm the one who calls, maybe they'll come for me. If I step in, maybe they'll come for me. It comes from fear. So why don't kids help even if they want to? Because of the bystander effect. So they taught them to talk about their fears. They taught them about the diffusion of responsibility and the, oh goodness, what was the word? The ignorance one, which I'll, I'll get back to the vocabulary here in a little bit. They go into the psychology. Even John Darley, who formed the earliest studies, said it was essential to destroy the idea that all people seem to have about themselves, that they will always do the right thing. People look at these situations and go, well, I would have run in to help. Well, I would have stopped the fight. Well, I would have stopped that person from yelling at the clerk. But in reality, they don't know how they'll react until the moment. That's not just fight or flight. That is also bystander. In order for that to be destroyed, the idea of it, and for them to have a realistic expectation, and for them to then get past the bystander effect and actually do the thing that they want to have done, they need to understand the reasons for their behavior. There is actual proof that those who attended lectures about bystander behaviors were less likely to be a bystander. So it, it's an education piece. So It is. It's not just saying, be an upstander, not a bystander, and leaving it at that. It's like, everyone gets scared. This is terrifying, but it's like, do something about it. Yeah, actually engaging with it. And we also would do things like show videos. and like, what's the right thing to do? We never discuss, why might you not have done it? Yeah. And especially if we do, we make them share it out loud. And that's not fair either. It's like, it's easy to talk about, oh, you know, it's like, I absolutely would have stood up to that guy as like an armchair quarterback. In reality, he's six foot seven. I'm not going to stand up to that guy. Yeah. And it's the same way people treat people in domestic violence situations. Well, I would just stand up to them. You're not living every day. And nobody has gone through with these people and helped them understand how you end up in these relationships because we don't teach sex ed in school. But that's a whole other issue. Oh my god, combine the comics code and sex ed. 100 ways the 50s are still fucking up America. Yeah, so we not only tell kids that they have to be an upstander because it's the right thing to do, we tell them they're a bad person if they're a bystander, which is so wrong. Yeah, there's lots of situations where it's fine to be a bystander. Like, let's say, for instance, you don't know CPR and there's someone... You don't, don't do it. Don't assume you can because you saw it in a movie. Yeah, it's actually a really scary thing to do. Yeah, it is. I'm thankful I've never had to do it in reality. Because, like, if you don't know what you're doing with CPR, you can, like, you you will break ribs doing CPR. Yeah. That's just a fact. Flat out. And also, you're putting a lot of air into their stomach when you're doing the breathing part, which I don't even know if they still teach that anymore. I haven't done it. It comes and goes. Usually, you're safe not doing it regardless. Yeah. You want to get that heart going. You're also putting air in their stomach. So, once you're done, they're going to throw up. And if they're not on their side, they're going to drown in their own vomit. Also, don't do the heart thing if you can tell they've got a good breath and a heartbeat going. Yeah. Just because they're unconscious does not mean they need broken ribs. Yep. Here's the thing, kids. You're not a bad person if you don't stand up every single time. Nobody does. Mm -hmm. Just do your best. Try to do it. And now you're understanding more. Try to do it. Yeah. No one can stand up every time. And there is one important factor that never that always needs to be left out of the conversation. We talk about fear for oneself in it, but we do not talk about the fear for loved ones. And that is how the Holocaust happened. We talk about the bystander effect in reference to genocides and the Holocaust all the time. And we talk about how these were bad people, inherently evil people. Now, if somebody came up to you and said, either you turn in your next door neighbor or I will kill your children. I am very sorry, next door neighbor, but I also hate children. <laughs> but I would, I would turn in my next door neighbor if it was like, it's like if the options are them or my family. I mean, that's, 
Yeah, and so that's also part of why people stood by and watched these horrific things happening. It's not that they were on board with it. They were told, we're doing this, and if you stop us, we're going to kill your family. Wouldn't you rather have it be a million people you don't know rather than these five people you love? Oh, God, this and, is like the worst version of the trolley problem. Exactly. And so that's where these genocides happen. It's not because these are inherently evil people. It's because they're given an impossible choice. And they become bystanders out of necessity. We don't talk about that in any of these studies, probably because there's no way to really replicate that without causing permanent damage to the people. Anyway, the fact is, we're all bystanders and hopefully we're all altruists sometime. Even if you're the best person in the world who is Lin-Manuel Miranda, you are not going to um, always be an altruist. The best person in the world is Chrissy Teigen. No. She's married to John Legend, the sexiest man alive. Have you seen Lil Miranda's wife, though? She is cool. She's like a lawyer, and she bu she bullies him around. It's good. Oh, my God. Okay. Weigh in, people. Who is the better person, Chrissy Teigen or Lin Manuel Miranda? Lin Manuel Miranda. Yes, but let me have my competition. <laughs> it's like we all will sometimes not stand up for the person who who is behind the desk bullied. We, most of us, will not pull over to help the person who's got a stalled car. And... This brings me to two other things that don't seem to be addressed in any part of the research. The knowledge that this may be a staged situation and actual training to be a bystander. I did several psych studies when I was in college, sometimes because it was part of my actual psych class, sometimes because you got paid. So I knew I was in a psych study when I did this. I would imagine most of these students, except for maybe the seminary ones, knew that they were in a psych class. They probably knew somewhere in the back of their head that the conversation they were having or the test they were taking was not the actual study. If they had studied the Kitty Genovese study already, that could be in the back of their head. Or if they had done the one where you are giving electroshocks to somebody and a certain percentage of people quote unquote killed them in the process, that could be in the back of your head. You know they're lying to you. So your reactions, consciously or otherwise, might be informed by the fact that you know that they are not actually studying you in the way that they say they are. Wow. Yeah. So if you're sitting in a room being told that the person that you're talking to has a seizure disorder, but you know you're in a psych study, you might know that they're waiting to see if you react in a certain way, kind of like which automatically taints the evidence, even if your reaction is unconsciously biased. So basically, like, I'm watching an action movie and suddenly Robert Redford shows up as just this random guy who's like a CIA analyst. It's like, oh shit, Robert Redford's the bad guy. And he always is. Uh-huh. I knew it. So it's kind of like that. And then there's bystander training, which of course it's not called that, but it is. It's especially real for women, but I'm sure men get it too. It's where you don't stop to help somebody because they must pose a risk to you, even if they have not shown any evidence that they will. Uh, we Something similar to that, but it's mostly a, oh, this isn't my business. I should just leave this alone. Yeah. So don't stop to help a stalled car because they're probably hoping to hijack you. If you hear somebody screaming for help down an alley, they're just faking to put you into sex trafficking. Don't give money to a homeless person because they're just in it for the drugs. Don't give someone the Heimlich because they're just going to sue you for the broken ribs. Actually, there's lots of states we are legally protected under Good Samaritan laws where they can't do that. Unless you're in medical fields often. Uh. Because you're off the clock and therefore you're not covered. It's a whole thing. So women are obviously more told this because obviously everybody else is out to rape you. Every single person, especially if they're men. And then we also need to uh, have a quick just talk about the training of people of color or in poor communities that are told to not call the police because the police can be as dangerous to them as the actual criminals. And in some cases they are. So there are cases where they hear the domestic violence happening. They might physically go intervene, but they're not going to call the cops because the cops are going to hear something about black man beating up, they see a black man outside, they're going to arrest that guy. 
I'm not saying this is a universal cop thing, but it's statistically significant enough that people in these communities are afraid to call. And then on top of that, we have areas with high gang activity where being a bystander is safest for you and your family. Letting it happen, not getting involved. None of this is brought up in these studies, these outside effects. None of these things make someone evil. No matter what we tell these kids in our bystander versus upstander training, you are not an evil person if you are not perfect all the time. You're an evil person if you go out of your way to let these things happen or to cause them to happen. That's what makes you evil. Letting these things happen from time to time does not make you evil. But now you understand what's causing it and you can overcome it. I want to bring up one good way to not be a bystander, which is what you kind of alluded to earlier. Yay! People take cues from others. They wait for that person in authority to tell them what to do. They don't have to know that someone's in authority or not. They're waiting for somebody to step in and say, I'm the boss now, and you're gonna feckin' listen to me. People don't typically want to be bystanders. That's the evil people. People just don't know what to do, and they're looking for cues. So I received CPR and first aid training a few years ago. Not all teachers are required to do that, guys. We need to change that. That's not okay that not all teachers are expected to have that training. I think that's a good thing for like most people to get like as a part of a gym class for students or even just through your job. It's like, hey, we're going to provide CPR and first aid training because it's really important because sometimes like it's a matter of minutes between life and death or permanent injury. So if someone is visibly in need of assistance and there's a group, all it may take is one person saying I'm in charge now. They don't actually have to say those words, but it might help actually. If you are trained in first aid and CPR, you jump in to help that person point to someone in the crowd and say, you are calling 911. If you're in a store situation, you then point to someone else and say, you are finding an employee. If you, and then you also might say, does anybody else have training? Because they might have just frozen and not remembered and all of a sudden they're like, oh shit, I do. And they yeah. jump in. You should not be administering CPR and calling 911 by yourself unless you have no choice. Yeah. You take charge. You don't have to even, and if you don't have that training, still take charge. Go out and say, I'm in charge now. You're calling 911. You're getting a store staff member. Does anybody here know CPR? Is there a doctor in the house? Yeah. It's like, they just need someone to tell them what to do. So being a bystander is both a choice and not a choice. It is one of those really hard psychological things. It depends on your own experiences. For instance, one of the smoke studies was considered an outlier because one of the people in the study had actually lived through a fire. And so he was not at all affected by the other people. He's like, fuck it, I'm getting help because he had lived through a fire, I believe, on a naval ship. Oh, damn. So he knew that yeah, these people are not reacting in a way that is correct in this situation. Okay, I don't know a ton about the Navy or boats in general, but I do know that if there's a fire... You, like, you drop what you're doing and deal with it because fires on boats are really bad. Fires in general, not great. No, but on boats, they're worse. Especially a Navy one because they're also, you're on a boat full of explosives. And other things that factor in are where you mentally are at the moment. So if you've already had a billion bad things happen, you might just freeze. You might not be able to process what's happening and how the others around you are behaving. People can, though, in fact, be trained to be altruistic, as we talked about earlier. They just need the correct kind of training. And that involves not just understanding the pain of others, which is what we kind of focus on as, as teachers, which is not all that matters, but also the psychology of you. If you're a bystander, you can stand there for a second and go, okay, I'm standing here. There is someone yelling at a store clerk. There are other people in line, so I'm not responsible for stopping this. Or other people, including the employee, are not reacting, so I should not react. So there's diffusion of responsibility right there, which is the other people are here. And other people are not reacting, which is the pluralistic response thing. They're not reacting, so I shouldn't. 
The bystander effect, now that you know what it, what it is, you can sit there and be a bystander and think, is this my responsibility? Why not? Is If your answer is, because other people are around, that's not a reason. That's the bystander effect. That is diffusion of responsibility. If your answer is, well, nobody else seems freaked out, that's pluralistic ignorance. And unless you are hyper aware of the situation and you know how these people would normally react, react the correct way. If you know that you are not reacting because of a legitimate fear, that's a different story. Okay, I've got an important question for you, and it relates to comic books. In Spider-Man, when Spider-Man doesn't stop that robber and because it's not his responsibility, and then he goes on to kill Uncle Ben, that, I'm assuming, is is that a pluralistic response? Spl- okay, give me the psychology of Spider-Man. Was there someone else there? Yes, someone said, stop that thief, and Spider-Man said, it's not my job. So there's only one person there besides him. Yeah. That person, for some reason, is not close enough to stop the person themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that would not be either diffusion of responsibility or pluralistic effect, because there is no, the other person there is reacting in a way that says, this is what I need you to do. There's only one other person there, and unless he said, that's your job, not just, that's not my job, that wouldn't be diffusion of responsibility. So Spider-Man was just an asshole in that situation. That would likely be a fear response more than anything else. Especially if there was an indication that the person was armed. But this was Spider-Man. Was he Spider-Man yet? Yeah. I I don't remember the stuff enough. Oh, okay. Never mind then. But still, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. And that goes back to, he's not evil now though. He's not responsible for Ben's death. Those are two Mm -hmm. different things. Yes, he could have prevented it potentially. But he also could have died in the process. Yep. Because I was about to say, obviously there are situations in which being a bystander is the best option. You witness something that could result in injury to you or another if you intervened. It is okay to simply be a witness to a certain extent. Obviously you should still find a way to call the cops or get help. But sometimes if all if this person has a gun and you can't find an escape at that moment, you're not the bad guy by not tackling him. You're not the bad guy if you don't jump into the middle of a fist fight. But if you see someone getting hurt in a way that you can stop without putting yourself or others in actual true risk, try to do something as often as you can. You now understand diffusion of responsibility, why you think this isn't my problem. Pluralistic ignorance. Well, everybody else is doing this, so I'm going to do that too. Simple things like being late, how this would inconvenience you. Honest to God, if you get to a job interview late or not at all, and you call and say, sorry, there was someone who got hit by a car and I stopped, and they say, well, screw you, we're not hiring you, you don't want to work there. Or a lack of definite support from a peer. If you have someone else there who is not willing to go help with you, you probably are less likely to help. None of these are an excuse. You may have been trained to not intervene. That goes back to reading the situation. Am I actually in danger? What can I do that is the most effective and safe way to help? You now have the power to ask, why am I not acting? And if your answer turns out to be, it's just inconvenient, it's not my responsibility, nobody else is reacting, or something like that, you now are making a choice. You're not just having a psychological reaction. So choose wisely. And that's the bystander effect. That was a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. All right, so here are your questions. All right. Will the terms diffusion of responsibility and pluralistic ignorance be on the test? Yes. Will the fact that Kitty Genovese was not totally surrounded by bystanders be on the test? I'm going to say no in most classes, but there's going to be some where it's like, actually. Yeah. And that's another thing. When you're true crime podcasts, if they claim that there were no altruists, give them an email. Be like, hey, listen to this amazing podcast or just look at American Psychologist. 
Will the fact that no one is a bystander or an altruist all the time be on the test? Yes. Trying to teach them complicated things with with a lot of, like, weird subtleties. Now, but if we're talking about a test that's just about behavior in schools at an elementary and middle school grades level. Oh, then no, that will not be on the test. Yeah, everybody has to be a good person all the time or they're a bad person. There is no black and there is no gray. Will the fact that it is actually difficult to be an altruist all the time or at all be on the test? No. Because you and I both know we're fairly decent people most of the time. I feel it's not always like good. It's not always an easy choice. Like when we stopped that lady from being rude behind the, to the lady behind the counter, or when I had a guy behind a counter make a sexually aggressive comment towards me, I had a very hard time turning around and asking him to repeat himself. The first thing I thought of was my students. What would I? I don't want to leave this guy here to say that to one of my students. Yeah, God, and then was... I got into my car and sobbed because I was so freaked out after standing up and doing the right thing. Yeah. That was that was a nightmare. I too. ended up on the phone with lawyers, not my lawyers. Lawyers for that organization. Yeah, because I called them and reported it, and they they also asked, "Were you with somebody?" I said, "No, I was alone." They're like, okay, some a bystander stood uh, called us so, and said what they saw. So another good thing, if you witness like someone sexually harassing someone or any of those situations, report it because those those even just reporting it does make a difference. Yeah, they actually like somebody else already called. So we have information from an outsider that is helpful. I'm, I'm sitting there. I felt so bad. They were so freaked out because I'm like sobbing. They're like, are you physically? I'm like, I'm fine. I'm just a little overwhelmed. And this is all in the course of about an hour afterwards. I was sitting in my car the whole time, terrified that this guy was going to find. Be nice. Doesn't matter what side of the counter you're on. Even if the person on the other side is being nasty, don't sink to that level. Stand up for yourself. That's a different thing. But don't start yelling sexually aggressive comments at them. I was not being the kindest person at that moment, but Ugh. it wasn't right what happened. If you see a car accident, stop. It doesn't matter how minor the car accident is, they will need a witness. And if it was bad, even if you see them getting out and walking around, think of Kitty Genovese. They might not be okay. And if you're out in the middle of nowhere, it could be a while before the cops show up. Keep them awake, talk to them. Make sure they're okay. Make sure they make like they need someone to keep an eye on things. Like if their vehicle starts smoking, they may not be in a place where they can be aware of that. When we got in our car accident, there were five cars there. Not a single one stopped and it was bad. So stop if you see a car accident, even if it's inconvenient to you. Again, if somebody gets mad at you for being late after that, you don't want to hang out with them. You don't want to work with them. Yeah. So we had, we touched some, some weirdly like heavy stuff today. Yeah. So what did you learn about the bystander effect? Oh, oh, God. That the Kitty Genovese story was not entirely accurate. Yeah, it doesn't change the fact that what happened to her is horribly tragic and that somebody ideally would have gone out to help. Mm -hmm. But it also is not accurate that nobody helped in a different way. Yeah. So what did you learn about the Comics Code Authority? I learned that it existed. I think it's really interesting that it was self-censorship as opposed to imposed censorship. Yeah, and it was... Again, you, you heard those things. This was a degree of censorship that was just onerous uh-huh another vocabulary word man we are we should just go take the sats for fun challenge except will they even let us take the no, SAT? we can take the gres actually okay. i don't know maybe we can i might not be able to because i already have a master's degree i have no idea we can't even take like the ged together no we both have high school diplomas god damn it there's no way we can take standardized tests we can go take a mensa exam <gasps> do they give you your scores can we compete I actually don't know if I can take a Mensa test because I took one already and I did not make it in. All right, so the holidays are just about over. Be safe on New Year's. Actually, this comes out on New Year's, not New Year's Eve, the night before. So be safe on New Year's. 
again, there's Uber, there's Lyft, there are regular cabs, there are friends. Make good choices. Yep. And we are available to you in all ways now. Ew. Um, <laughs> we are on Facebook. We are on Facebook at On the Test Pod. We are on Twitter at On the Test Pod. We are on the testpod.com. And we got an Instagram. You can finally see what our weird little cat goblins look like. Yeah, so we are at on the test pod. Keep it simple, guys. Keep yep. it simple. Just like me. Sir Austin the Simple. I'm very simple. <laughs> so we are on all of the socials now. Come find us. We have an email address that you can access most easily through our contact form on our website. But don't. Just find us on social media because I forget to check that email address regularly. You know, I bet there's someone in there who's offering us a bunch of money and I just haven't checked. This is Publishers Clearinghouse and we're offering <laughs> you five million dollars. Hello, I am Nigerian Prince. <laughs> Nigerian Prince. He misses the purple rains down in Africa. Purple rain? Yeah, that's a pr- purple rain. Purple it's a rain song. is a Prince song. Rains down in Africa is a different song. It's a portmanteau because Nigerian Prince. Oh! Maybe I'm not the simple one. <laughs> Um, maybe my brain is being eaten away because of all of the unhealthy food I've been eating. You got a lot of candy. Lucky. Again. He got me like those giant half pound Reese's cups. All right. So we'll stop talking for now. It's already been a long one and kind of a heavy one. So we'll have to go for some light stuff next week. Oh, I've got an idea. And it's going to be making fun of the jazz age. I thought you weren't making fun of the jazz age. Oh, I'm always making fun of the jazz age. Goodness gracious. All right. Well, on that note. Class, class dismissed. dismissed.